to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. We're living in very difficult times, my friends. And they are times we never expected and we weren't prepared for. It happens. Life is full of surprises, some of them good, some not so good, and some of them are just terrible, awful, horrible. And the true measure of who we are is how we behave and what we are willing to do when it happens that can somehow make life a little bit better and bearable for us and the people around us. It's hard to do these days. Reaching out to others at a time when we are instructed to keep our distance, to stay at home, to isolate ourselves, well, that's difficult. And sometimes it's even dangerous because we are in the middle of a great plague. I didn't need to tell you that. You already know it. And maybe you're one of those people who are listening to the instructions and staying home in voluntary isolation. Or maybe if you're a doctor or a nurse or other medical caregiver or a first responder, you may be putting your life on the line every time you see a patient or go into a hospital to care for the people who are already suffering from the virus or rush to a fire or an automobile accident. And then when you finally get to go home after a 12-hour shift, you have to worry about the possibility of giving the virus to your own family. It's tough being us these days. This is the plague of the century. We haven't seen anything like this since the Spanish flu, which struck 100 years ago in January 1918 and didn't end until December 1920. Three full years of terror and death and suffering. That pandemic may have infected as many as 500 million people. That was about a quarter of the world's population at the time. The death toll from the Spanish flu is only a guesstimate because the records in various countries around the world at that time were sketchy at best. But the number of dead from the Spanish flu is estimated to have been somewhere between 17 million and 100 million people worldwide. One of the reasons that the numbers are so uncertain is that this flu occurred during the First World War and the national security of several participating countries and their need to keep up the morale of their troops made countries like Britain, France, the United States, and even Germany minimize the number of deaths from the virus, which skewed the real numbers dramatically. One thing is clear, though. It was one of the deadliest pandemics in human history. Did you know that plagues have occurred throughout human history and some of them have lasted for several centuries? I thought there were only a few, like the Black Plague and Spanish Flu. That's all I knew about. But there were many. And in fact, when I was doing the research for today's show, I actually found a list of the 10 most deadly plagues in human history. And those were only the top 10. Anyway, the plague that came closest to the Spanish Flu in sheer numbers was the Black Death, or the bubonic plague. That was caused by something called Y. pestis, and it comes from fleas that live on infected rats. That plague has struck many times in our recorded history. One of the first well-documented plagues was the plague of Justinian. That plague 
began in 542 AD, and it was part of a much larger series of plagues that actually lasted for three centuries. At one point, this pandemic was killing as many as 10,000 people a day in Constantinople. Constantinople was the capital of the Byzantine Empire, and it was named after the Emperor Constantine. Today, that city is called Istanbul, and it's the capital of Turkey. But anyway, getting back to the plague, it was thought to have originated in China in the 6th century B.C., and it slowly spread across Asia to the Mediterranean and Africa, and it arrived in Constantinople in 542 A.D., as I said, and hung around for another 225 years. This plague was responsible for the deaths of millions of people all over Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. Modern estimates, and of course they are just estimates because there are no medical records, they indicate that as much as half of Europe's population, almost 100 million people, was wiped out before that plague finally died out in the 700s. Another pandemic swept through Asia and Europe in the 14th century. This one, too, was believed to have started in China in 1334, and then it spread on the ships that plied the trade routes and reached Europe in the late 1340s, where it spread like wildfire. That plague killed an estimated 25 million people, almost a third of Europe's population at the time, and it lasted on and off for a period of several centuries. Altogether, an estimated 200 million people died from those rounds of plagues. So, you see, we are not alone, and in fact, we stand in some pretty good historical company. That doesn't help us much, but it may give us some historical perspective. Anyway, the fact is that there have been pandemics in almost every generation since the beginning of recorded history. The most recent one was a relatively small one. We thought it was big at the time. It seemed big. It was the SARS pandemic that hit us in 2003. According to the World Health Organization, a total of 8,098 people in 29 countries worldwide became sick with SARS, including 29 cases in the United States. Altogether, there were 774 SARS-related deaths. Considering what we're up against today, that barely counts as a pandemic at all. We're way past those numbers. So here we are, right in the middle of COVID-19. Some people have said that the 19 stands for the number of coronaviruses that preceded it, but that's not it. COVID stands for coronavirus disease, but the 19 was added because that's the year that this virus began. It's when it first appeared. Now, SARS is also a coronavirus. Coronavirus is actually a generic term. And the SARS virus, because it first began in November 2002, might be called COVID-02. It was simply called SARS-CoV-2. But maybe they'll refer to it in the future as COVID-02. We'll see. Anyway, that brings us to today as we struggle through the middle of this pandemic that is now attacking the world and promises and promises to be one of the worst in history. In Italy alone, in just, in just the past few months, more than 10,000 people have died from the virus that has ravaged their country. 
and some 100,000 people have been infected as of today. And here in the United States, the numbers are still growing. In New York City, there have been more than 33,760 confirmed cases and at least 775 people have died from the virus. That is as of Monday, March 30th. So throughout the country, every state and every city is dealing with this virus a little differently. We all know the protocols we are supposed to follow by heart. Stay at home if you can. Remember to keep social distances of at least six feet when you can't stay home. Wash your hands with soap and water, warm water, for at least 20 seconds as often as you can. And when you can't, use hand sanitizer and don't touch your face. Also, no hugging or kissing, no shaking hands, but an elbow bump is okay, except that I can't figure out how you do that when you're six feet apart. And if you have to sneeze or cough, cough into your sleeve, not into your hand. There's a lot more, of course, and when you come down to it, it's just plain common sense. This is a highly contagious disease, my friends, and you do not want to get it. So you need to use your common sense, and if you're having a hard time making a decision, I'd suggest taking the safer approach. Now, on the other hand, if you're one of those nutcases who thinks that mingling in a big crowd of friends is what you want to be doing, well, that's just plain dumb. And if you're one of those really hateful people who is going around sneezing and coughing on other people or on the fresh produce and meat in the supermarket, well, you just might be arrested and charged with terrorism. And you know what? You deserve it. We've been warned. But now the president is getting a lot of flack from the left about his comments regarding when the stay-at-home guidance can be lifted. In an optimistic moment, he said that he hoped they could be lifted by Easter, that he would love it if he could open America by Easter. It was a wish, not an order. But Easter is less than two weeks away now, and that hopefulness faded very fast. It wasn't going to be possible to lift the guidances by Easter, not even close. The numbers of people who are sick or who have died is still going up, and the need for social distance is as urgent as ever. So on Monday, March 29th, the president renewed his original 15 days to slow the spread order for another 30 days until at least the end of April. Here's the thing about the president. He's one of a kind. He loves America, and he loves the American people, and he loves to talk. And when he can't talk, he tweets. And more than anything, he wants to give the American people hope. But if he had asked me, which of course he didn't, I would have told him that it is more important to give the American people information, as much information, real information, as he can. Because overall... Americans can handle it. And by not doing that, by giving us false hope, he encourages the reaction that led to the panic buying and at the opposite end of the spectrum, the flaunting of the guidance by Generation Z idiots who thought nothing of frolicking on the beaches of Florida and giving each other cases of COVID-19. So by trying to give us peace of mind, he actually made the situation worse. And the liberal left is going after him for it. I get it. Telling us that COVID-19 was, as he said, 100% contained was a really bad idea. 
particularly when we could see the numbers climbing every day, slowly at first, and then more rapidly, and then incredibly fast. But to be fair, back then in February, no one really knew what they were dealing with, not the CDC, not the World Health Organization, and not any of the organizations who should have been the first to get a handle on it. In fact, honestly, they still don't know, not completely. This virus is not like anything they have ever seen before. They don't know when and how it mutates. They don't know how long this pandemic will last. They don't know its shelf life or how long it will spread until it stops spreading. And they don't know why it makes some people deathly ill while others barely feel any symptoms at all. And they still don't know, not definitively, how to stop it. They don't know how to vaccinate against it and they don't know how to cure it. They just don't know. So how can they tell us how long it will last? How long we have to keep our distance and not go to work? Or just stay at home? They're getting there, but they're not there yet. And the truth is, they can't tell us everything we need to know. And if they can't tell us now, how in the world could they have told us back then? Same answer. They couldn't. I would argue that under those circumstances, when they didn't have answers to give, they shouldn't have given any. They should have told us that this was something unfamiliar, but that they were putting all the resources of the United States to work to get the answers as soon as possible. And when they had to quarantine parts of the country, they needed to give it to us straight, as soon as possible, making it clear that we had responsibilities too, to keep ourselves and our families, and our neighbors, and our communities as safe as possible by following the guidances given to us by our medical experts, by keeping social distance, by staying at home when necessary, and by helping our country to bring this terrible killing virus to an end. Now look, it's confusing at best. Not all the medical experts agree, and that's confusing. And the politicians are doing what they always do and what they do best, or worst, as the case may be, arguing with each other, disagreeing with each other on what is best for the country, swiping at each other, and trying to undercut each other's agenda. That is not helping us. That is not helping America. That's getting in the way. But it is the price of living in a free country. The president took a firm stand when he cut off travel from China at the end of January, and he no doubt saved Americans from more exposure to the virus and an even worse epidemic with more deaths. But his need to continually give assurances when there really were none to give was, I think, a big mistake that hurt us in other ways. Instead of calming us down, he created a buying panic among some Americans who feared a long period of being under home isolation. His moves were right, but his words were all wrong. Instead of helping the American people, he actually made things harder. And he made Americans not less afraid, but more afraid. Because they knew, or at least suspected, that no one really knew what to expect, not even the president. I think the lesson to be learned here by us, the American people, is to recognize that the president will say whatever he thinks will help, but it may not help at all. So we must use our own common sense, do what we think is best for us and our families and our country. 
We should follow the advice of the doctors who are trying to get a handle on this pandemic. And most of all, we need to stay calm. And we will get through this. Our advanced technology will catch up with the COVID-19. And most of us will be able to tell our grandchildren what it was like to live through the great pandemic of the 21st century. Now, it's time for a hard break, but I'll be right back with some news about China that is truly shocking. Now, you've all heard me talk about how the Chinese government has vastly minimized the number of COVID-19 infections, and more than that, the number of deaths in China. They've been claiming some 81,000 cases and 3,000 plus deaths. And I've hinted that these are not the true numbers at all. So now we have some real numbers to work with. And as I said, they are truly shocking. So stay tuned and just wait till you hear what's coming next. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. What has happened in China to the Chinese people is shocking and sad, and it should never have happened. We've talked about it a little bit. We've talked about some of the most egregious, some of the most outrageous things that have happened there regarding this virus. But what's happening now, in some ways, is no less egregious. When the novel coronavirus hit Wuhan in mid-November 2019, the Chinese government tried to cover it up. We've talked about that. They now say that patient zero has been identified, that the first patient in Wuhan was a middle-aged man who started this pandemic on November 17, 2019. The story is foggy at best, and while the Chinese are maintaining that the virus originated in a live food market in Wuhan, I have given you other information based on intelligence from very reliable sources. You've all heard the story by now, so I won't go back into it. But the point is this. If the virus had been addressed quickly, If China had let the world know that there was a problem, and if they had allowed aid from organizations like the CDC and the World Health Organization, they might have been able to stop it. Probably not completely, but at least stop it from spreading so rapidly and so far. They might even have been able to slow down the global pandemic that has decimated populations all over the world. That's the argument. I don't actually believe it. We've all seen how rapidly this virus spread and how deadly it has been. Could it have been stopped in November and December in China? Did China have an antidote, a cure? Probably not, or they would have no doubt tried to use it. Or was it China's plan to spread this virus around the world? Remember, the virus was spreading wildly by the time the Lunar New Year in China came around on January 25th. Now, any responsible country would have acted immediately. They would have sealed their borders and they would have kept 
their people at home because remember, this is a holiday when Chinese people traditionally travel, not only within China, but around the world. And travel they did by the millions. China allowed them to go, to go abroad, to the United States, to Italy, France, and the UK. Millions of Chinese tourists traveling to see the world. And in fact, in Wuhan, a city of 11 million people, 5 million people left Wuhan to travel to who knows where. Did the Chinese government allow millions of Chinese citizens to travel abroad on purpose? It sounds like conspiracy theory. No government would do that. But the truth is, we may never know. We may never know because by the middle of February, the pandemic was in full swing, even though the World Health Organization refused to classify it as a pandemic until March 11th, four months after it was first seen in Wuhan, two and a half months after China announced that they had a problem, and two months after it began appearing in countries around the world. We'll never know because China refused to tell us anything. We only first heard about it in late December. And even then, China only released information that they were having a rash of what they called a pneumonia-like illness. What is especially disturbing about all this is that they led us to think that this was not such a serious epidemic because they kept their numbers ridiculously and artificially low. Even today, they claim that only slightly more than 80,000 infections took place in China, and even more ridiculous, they claim that the number of dead was slightly less than 3,300. But the numbers just don't add up. So here are some real and shocking numbers. Over the last few months, 21 million mobile phone accounts in China have been dropped as well as 8.96 canceled Facebook accounts. On March 23rd, Bloomberg published an article called China's Mobile Carriers Lose 21 Million Users as Virus Bites, unquote. And they attributed the sharp drop to the impact of the coronavirus on jobs and income. So people were giving up their cell phones. But there is a more ominous explanation that relates to the need of the Chinese government to keep tabs on its population. That's something we're not very familiar with, but every Chinese citizen knows all about it all too well. The population of China is 1.4 billion people. Billion. Every Chinese adult has at least one cell phone. So there are about 1.6 billion registered mobile accounts in the adult population in a country of 1.4 billion people. But over the last couple of months, that number has dropped by more than 21 million. And the number of landlines, which had been 190.8 million, dropped by 840,000. In other words, over the past three months, 21 million mobile accounts have simply disappeared, and the disrupted economy cannot account for that many phones. The Chinese government requires all of its citizens to use their cell phones to generate what they call health codes. 
The government claims to do this so that everyone's movements can be tracked using the coronavirus as an excuse. New phones are now loaded with facial recognition software as well so that the person to whom the phone is registered can be identified. In China, permission to travel in this time of the coronavirus can be restricted to healthy people. Everything that a person does, not only applying to the government for benefits, for example, but even buying tickets for public transportation or shopping, requires a cell phone. There's very little that a person can do in China that does not require a cell phone. And because of that, it is virtually impossible for a user to cancel his cell phone service. All these phones are enabled by the Chinese government to serve as sources of information about the people who use them. And the sheer number of them does more than just raise an eyebrow. So it is more than unusual for 2.6 million of these accounts to suddenly disappear within a few weeks of each other. This is not just conspiracy theory. This is most probably conspiracy and at the highest level of government. And there's another thing. As I told you a number of weeks ago, as so many people in Wuhan were dying from the COVID-19, the personnel in the city's eight funeral homes were vastly overburdened. And the people in the 49 crematoria were working two 12-hour shifts, in other words, nonstop, to cremate an average of more than 100 bodies a day for weeks. They were understaffed, overworked, and completely exhausted with only one or two hours sleep a night. Now, in recent weeks, funeral homes have been receiving large shipments of urns, presumably for the ashes of the dead to be given to their families. One funeral home alone received two shipments of 5,000 urns. You do the math. Or better yet, let me give you some bottom line numbers. And another bit of no less shocking information. Between the evidence of millions of cell phone accounts disappearing and tens of thousands of urns being delivered to mortuaries, there is an educated guess that the number of deaths in China from the virus would far exceed the 81,000 people infected by the virus and the 3,300 people who had died from it, which are the official numbers from the Chinese government. In fact, a modest guess but maybe a more accurate one, would easily exceed 50,000 dead and one and a half million people who had been infected. One more extreme assessment suggested that 40 million people were infected and 1.6 million people died. And so it goes. These numbers are another example of how the duplicity of the Chinese government and China's reprehensible efforts to cover it up has caused a breakdown in intelligent analysis of the impact of this virus on the rest of the world. This duplicity from the Chinese government is nothing new. We have known about it for years, from the way they have lied to us and broken their contracts in so many of their dealings with other countries and particularly with the United States, from whom they stole intellectual property worth billions of dollars every year and lied about their misuse of trade secrets and unethical trade practices. 
But there's a big difference here, a very big difference, because those unethical practices did not result in the death of tens of thousands of people, including their own. There is no way to justify how the Chinese government has behaved in the face of the pandemic. Now, if you believe that the virus just appeared from an animal in a live food market, as the Chinese government is still trying to convince us it did, then their behavior is still bad and turned out to be deadly. But if you think, as I do, that it was an experiment in a bioweapons project that went bad and escaped from a laboratory to infect first their nation and then the world, then that explains why the government was so eager to hide it and why they would not let the CDC and the World Health Organization come into the country for so long. But it does make it a crime instead of an accident of nature. And the Chinese government is all the more guilty for trying to hide it. Right now, China is in turmoil. The population in central China is in the early stages of revolt. They have suffered greatly since the virus killed so many of their relatives and friends and neighbors and has sickened so many more. And they hold the government responsible. China's future hangs in the balance. It's not assured that the current government will be able to hold on to its power. The virus has weakened its military and its police force. And in some places, the police have actually joined the people in their rebellion. The economy has been badly damaged. And now, even though they're forcing people to go back to work, the virus has not disappeared. Some even say that a second wave is about to happen or is already happening. And despite Chinese propaganda... The Chinese economy is not improving as rapidly as they would like us to believe. They say that they are going back to business as usual, but the word is that there is a strong undercurrent of rebellion beginning to move throughout the country. Of course, it's China, so we don't really know. It's difficult to get the truth out of China. Government surveillance of the people is inhibiting even terrifying those who would otherwise come forward. But if the people truly had enough, then change may be coming to China. Right now, as the rest of the world struggles with COVID-19, tyrannies are being challenged by the people as well. It's true in Iran, it's true in Venezuela, and it may be true in China. We will have to wait and see. Now, I'm going to do something a little different here. Let's take a break from the hard news, and I'll tell you a couple of stories that will make you mad or make you laugh or cry or just astonish you with the utter nonsense that passes for news these days. This part usually starts the third segment of the show, but I'm going to do it now instead. You just can't make this stuff up. Here's one to make you mad. In Rhode Island, there is a public school teacher who has decided to show off to the world just how mean and vulgar she can be. It shows, unfortunately, how low we as Americans have gotten ensnared in the pure, unmitigated hate that has taken over so much of our nation's conversation. This teacher has a political agenda, which she is not afraid to flaunt. Why she hasn't been fired is a puzzle to me, but hey, what do I know? Her name is is Amy Bednars, 
and she is allowed to teach sixth graders at the Villanova Middle School in Woonsocket, Rhode Island. Here's what she tweeted just this week. Quote, somebody with COVID-19, I will pay you to cough on Trump. Unquote. That is just vile. She goes under the handle of proud teacher, but I sure wouldn't be proud if I were she. Not much to be proud of. And I sure wouldn't want her to be teaching my kids. America's children deserve far better than to have teachers whose primary lesson is political and one full of unbridled hate. And that's not all she's done, by the way. She has also stalked supporters of school choice and has docked Kerry Rodriguez, the president of the National Parents Union, who says, quote, she threatens to come directly to my house. Amy has even done her research to find out the name of the street I live on and even my phone number, which she calls on a regular basis, unquote. A sixth grade teacher entrusted with the education of our children is harassing and doxing people with whose opinion she disagrees and teaching the hateful politics of the radical left to our children. Sad to say, this is real. You just can't make this stuff up. And then there is New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo. You remember, he's the one who's been holding press briefings every day like he's president and complaining about how the president won't send them the ventilators they so desperately need in New York. He's the same one who was offered 4,000 ventilators in 2017 to stockpile for a pandemic just like this one, and he turned them down. And now he's complaining about how the federal government has been ignoring his urgent request for 30,000 ventilators. We don't need 400, he said. We need 30,000. So what is this bit of news? Well, it seems that Cuomo has just admitted that his state already has thousands of unused ventilators, and according to my sources, they are sitting in a warehouse in New Jersey. What? Only last week, on the 24th of March, at his daily press conference, Cuomo said, and I quote, We need the federal help, and we need the federal help now, unquote. He said he wanted all current federal stockpile of 20,000 units for New York City. Here we're talking about the urgent need for life-saving ventilators and how the federal government is ramping up production for the entire country. And Cuomo is demanding the entire U.S. stockpile for his state alone. But what about all those respirators that are in a storeroom in New Jersey? What about them? We don't need them yet, he said. We need them for the apex. And the apex isn't here, so we're gathering them in the stockpile. So when we do need them, they'll be here, unquote. It seems to be of no importance at all to Cuomo that there are many other places in the country that also need ventilators. And they actually do need them now. Is there no end to the greed and hypocrisy of politicians today? You just can't make this stuff up. Okay, folks, it's time for another break. And when I come back, I have a few more words to say about the infuriating hypocrisy of some of the people we have chosen to lead us. And then I want to tell you a little bit about something we all can cheer about. It's a celebration. And I'll tell you all about it when I come back in just a minute. 
Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. We've been speaking about politics and politicians. We always do. It seems there is always a story or always something outrageous or something important that happens, and we have to talk about it. So speaking of politics and politicians, there's this. When politics gets in the way of our national security and the safety and welfare of the American people, then there is something very wrong with the way we carry out our business. Last week, for example, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi made a statement that should have outraged everyone, but of course it didn't. Here's what she said. Quote, The President, his denial at the beginning was deadly. His delaying of getting equipment to where it, his continued delay in getting equipment to where it's needed is deadly. Now the best thing to do would be to prevent more loss of life rather than open things up because we just don't know. We have to testing, testing, testing." Unquote. Now aside from the fact that it was barely coherent, that she stumbled over her words and didn't put full sentences together, there was something very wrong with what she said. His continued delay, she said, and she criticized him for not, quote, getting equipment to where it's needed, unquote. She called it deadly. If there were an award for hypocrisy, Nancy Pelosi would no doubt get first prize. It was only a week ago that she came sailing into the United States Senate just as they were about to pass the rescue bill that would have provided funding for the American people many of whom had just lost their jobs because of the federal government's stay-at-home orders. 
It would also have provided hospitals around the country with a desperately needed infusion of $100 billion to help them buy the equipment and the supplies they needed to save the lives of thousands of COVID-19 patients. That bill was set to pass quickly in order to help Americans keep their jobs, as well as to help the health providers who risk their lives every day caring for the coronavirus patients and providing the money for small and big companies to help them pay salaries even when their workers couldn't come to work. This bill was a life raft for desperate, drowning Americans. But it was no other than Nancy Pelosi who stopped it dead in its tracks, waving her own thousand-page-plus bill with many more giveaways, including millions of dollars for the cultural arts in Washington and solar power and wind generators and on and on, things that had nothing to do with the ravages of COVID-19. Lindsey Graham minced no words. He said, quote, She's the first politician to blame another politician for people dying. This is the same Speaker of the House who held up a bill in the Senate for days because she wanted same-day voting. She wanted carbon neutrality for the airlines. She wanted $75 million for the endowment of the humanities and $25 million for the Kennedy Center. We took most of the garbage out. But for her to blame this president for causing loss of life after she held up the relief package for days to get a liberal special interest shopping list in the bill is pretty disgusting, unquote. And I agree with him, he was right. She was the one who threw the monkey wrench into the process of helping the American people at a time of great emergency. She held up the bill for days, but she blamed Trump for hurting the American people, even killing them. Senator Ted Cruz pointed out that every day that she held back this bill, hundreds of people were dying actually dying. Well, she played politics. Nancy Pelosi isn't hurting. She hasn't lost her job or her salary. Congress doesn't deprive themselves of anything. She doesn't have to worry about how she'll feed her children or pay her rent. She's a millionaire. This pandemic is a cakewalk for her. So why not hold things up for a few days? Blame it on Trump. Why not? Well, I can think of a whole list of reasons why not. But what enrages me the most is her audacity and her total lack of shame. Whatever rules apply to the rest of us, they apparently don't apply to her. And she seems perfectly comfortable blaming the president for delaying aid to the American people, even though she did exactly that only a week ago. Her short memory is exceeded only by her total disregard for the Americans who were desperately waiting for the help that the bill promised. It's very clear that she certainly takes no responsibility for her own actions. And as far as the testing is concerned, she said, testing, testing, testing. Her faulty memory has also deleted the fact that it was the Democrats who failed during the eight years of Obama presidency to replenish the stocks of critical medical equipment that would be needed for a pandemic like this after they had been depleted in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. The Obama administration was warned, and they ignored the warning. So here we are in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, a horrible pandemic, 
And we have to scramble in so many ways to replace the critical medical equipment that should have been in place but wasn't. And Nancy Pelosi blamed it on Trump. Pelosi is a disgrace to her office, and it is shocking, no, terrifying, to think that she is third in line for the presidency if something should happen to President Trump and Vice President Pence. Pelosi is 79 years old. Maybe her age is beginning to show in her forgetfulness and her loss of whatever conscience she may once have had. She has clearly forgotten what she was elected to Congress to do, to uphold the Constitution and protect the American people. Her retirement is definitely overdue. Now, before I get to the end of this show, and we still have plenty of time, I want to talk to you about something you'll be hearing a lot about on the America Out Loud Network. It's about the April 1st anniversary celebration of America Out Loud, and it's going to go on for a month. This is the fourth anniversary of the platform, and it's one that I am proud to be a part of. Now, I'd like to ask you to go to the homepage of the America Out Loud website, if you're not on it already, and take a look at what it says at the top. I'm reading it now. Quote, Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. Shouldn't news deliver truth and inspire us to reach higher? America Out Loud is home to news blogs, podcasts, talk radio, and video. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. A daily resource for smart people. Unquote. And that, my friends, is what America Out Loud is all about. The things we talk about on America Out Loud are everything. But we look at the news as a way of making ourselves and our lives and our country and our future, all of those things, better, stronger, kinder. We believe in this country. We believe that America is great, that America is based on a foundation that was built by our founding fathers 244 years ago. I'd like to read to you something that I wrote for the 4th of July. It was an article about how, how our country was created, how it was shaped and formed, and what were the political dynamics of the time. It's called Genesis of a Great Nation a reminder of who we are supposed to be. And in fact, you can, f you can find this article on America Out Loud under Ilana Friedman, under bloggers. But I'm going to read it to you now because I, I think it's very timely and it speaks to the mission of America Out Loud. So here goes, quote, The men who created the United States of America at the end of the 18th century came together in a boisterous, bickering fraternity and worked with uncommon determination to create something unique in statecraft. 
They saw beyond the boundaries of their personal experience, and they embarked upon a great experiment that swept 13 autonomous colonies into a unique and historic confederation of the United States of America. And here's the interesting part, my friends. You know, they didn't all get along. They didn't all agree. They had their differences, and (laughs) they fought it out. The article goes on, quote, The political process was plagued, not unlike today, with jealousy, spite, biting competitiveness throughout the dangerous and difficult course of putting this country together. They fought bitterly among themselves throughout the entire process, and their bickering was the subject of gossip, anonymous pamphlets, and even duels that kept tongues wagging from New Hampshire to Virginia. In the end, however, they compromised where they could, overcame their differences, created something that went far beyond any form of governance that the world had ever seen, a democratic republic, based on an eloquent and original theory that was firmly rooted in their vision of a better world. And that, you know, that's the important part. They had their differences, and they fought. They argued. But in the end, they found places where they could compromise. They found some sort of middle ground. And in the end, when they put their signatures on the Declaration of Independence, they created something new in this world, something wonderful, something exceptional. They embodied that vision in the Declaration of Independence, in which they first demanded the right to break away from England. The great commonwealth, ruled ineptly by King George III, considered the 13 colonies an intrinsic and inseparable part of the British Empire. The patriots, however, made their intentions clear by signing their names at the end of this document. These earliest Americans put their own lives in mortal jeopardy. They were committing treason against the British crown, and that act was punishable by death of the most cruel and painful kind. Their vision went much further than simply breaking ranks with Britain. They conceived a theory of governance based on individual equality and a new kind of government that broke with centuries of tradition that had given inordinate powers to the throne over their own lives and activities. Instead, these early Americans gave the people the right to govern themselves. They wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words were as revolutionary as the war that followed. This basic premise formed the foundation for America's natural growth from the Atlantic to the Pacific. The founding fathers succeeded, despite their ideological differences and bitter controversies, because they talked to each other, they compromised, they reached across the chasm of their differences, 
and enable themselves to build a lasting architecture on which our nation could endure. We stand at a crossroads today, one that is mired in bitterness and intransigence. We must somehow reach out across the chasm that divides us and relearn how to communicate in civil discourse, sharing ideas, compromising, and solving the problems of a nation. We must choose between the two paths, one that will lead us away from those concepts that made our nation great, and one that will lead us toward a renewed strength of purpose based on the principles that once changed the world. I first met Malcolm a number of years ago when somehow I wound up as a guest on his show. He had a show from uh, out west somewhere and I was uh, living in Boston and working there and he interviewed me on the subject of my expertise at the time, which was terrorism. Anyway, we hit it off and then somehow we lost touch. We both moved around a bit and we reconnected a few years ago and he introduced me to his new platform, America Out Loud. It was love at first sight. It was his brainchild, and I thought it was brilliant. Honestly, I love what he's doing. I love what his, I love what America Out Loud stands for, and I love being a part of it. I'm a patriot, as is everyone on America Out Loud. We love America. We love what it stands for, and we fight every day to uphold, to protect, and to share the values that America stands for. Malcolm's idea is that we should shout the message of freedom and shout it out loud. On America Out Loud, we talk about the things that make life meaningful. We talk about the values that we share that make us strong. We talk about the history. We talk about the future. We talk about issues and we talk about values and we talk about ideas. And the most important thing about the way we talk is that our conversations are always civil. No matter how much we may disagree with each other, the important thing, the most important thing, is to share our ideas with respect and with civility so that we can learn from each other and we can also further shape our ideas by hearing the ideas of others because we learn from each other and as we have these conversations we hope you will learn something as well. Well as it does every week the clock is running out. And it's time for me to wish you a good week, a safe week. Stay well, stay safe. Do what you have to do in these very dangerous times that we're living in right now. To be well, to take care of yourself and those you love. Have a good week. You've been listening to News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been 
The Friedman Report. 